0: Well, as Mitch mentioned, I've been studying the Word of God for many years. Been a believer for 50 years, pastor for 31 years. And uh, I've come to realize the Christian life isn't nearly as complicated as we seem to make it. King Solomon realized that. He's the one that wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. At the end, he said, Fear God, (laughs) keep his commandments. And as I was preparing for this and wanted to share with you, some verses came to mind. And Deuteronomy is one of them. It says, Seek him and search him with all your heart. Again, in Deuteronomy 6 5, it says, Love him with all your heart. Again, in Deuteronomy 10, it says, Walk in his ways and serve the Lord with all your heart. And of course, a verse that we're all familiar with, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. You see, this is the place where God is glorified and where joy and fulfillment and satisfaction fills our soul when we love him, trust him, serve him with all of our heart. But why don't we? What was Israel's problem? When we examine Isaiah 22 today, we're going to learn some principles to help us to know God, to seek him, to walk in his way and serve him and stay on track. So Lord, I ask you to guide us. Use me. Use your word to open our eyes to what's important to you. Lord, we know that you are moving. We know that you're there. And, Lord, we just need insight from you. And we need to really let you deal with our heart. That's really where the issue lies. So help us, Lord, as we dig into these few verses and help me as i share a couple of insights that you've shared with me to speak to our hearts. Keep us humble. Keep the evil one away. He loves to distract. He loves to confuse. And Lord, we just trust you to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple of things. You'll notice I've given you a lot of things to have in your hand. You have a The actual text of Isaiah 22, and I'm going to refer to this as we go through, and you'll notice the highlighted spot on the text is primarily where we're going to focus our attention. There's three major sections here. First section has three parts, second section has three parts, and the last section, there's two basic things I want us to target in our discussion. Also, wanted to remind you of this chart. One of the assignments I had in Bible college was to do a historical chart. And I put one together on Muslim, four feet by four feet. And Rory is so sweet. He took my chart and transferred it so we could have it in our hands. And uh, I really appreciate it. Of course, you see across the top, time. And oh, by the way, above that time list is God. Keep that in mind. And we see the prophets dealing with the nation of Israel in the green area. And then below you see the kings and the prophets dealing with Judah. And right in the middle are the Asian or the uh, empires. And they're dealing with what was going on In Israel at the time. Now there's a a yellow line I want you to be sure to look at. It's called the spiritual up and down line. And it started out, you know, right around Uzziah, who was king for 55 years. Went for a while and then dropped, went way down. And Jotham, Ahaz, and then Hezekiah came back up. A good guy, a good king, we'll talk about him in a minute. And then after his twenty nine years of reign, another bad king came on the scene. And it crashed. Now, while Hezekiah was king, it's when Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Judah. And if you wanted to, in Second Kings eighteen and second chronicles twenty eight, you'll see. Hezekiah and others going on and what they're doing at that time. We didn't have the time to deal with that. But I wanted you to have that just to give you a feel and ask you a question. What's going on in our country? What are the empires doing? What are the leaders doing? What is God saying to us? And I, I'm blown away when I look at this, these verses, to see how up-to-date they are for us today. Now, I wanted you to get a little background before we actually get into the text. Remember Isaiah, chapter 1, it says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So God's saying, I've got a, a man here that I want to be my vessel to communicate to my people. And the first six chapters of Isaiah is fascinating when you start looking. He goes through and identifies all kinds of problems. And then at the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord in a fresh new way. He recognized, man, I'm a sinful man. I live in a midst of sinful people. And then the angel, of course, came down, took fire off of the altar and put it on his lips and the angel said this, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Man, he was transformed. And I love the next thing he said, the Lord said, who's going to go for me? The first thing he said, I'll go, I'll go. And then the Lord said, are you sure you want to go? You're going on and said, "Well, you're going to go, and I'll let you speak and speak and speak and realize the people you speak to aren't going to listen." <laughs> Believe me, being a pastor, I understand that. <laughs> I'm sure Mitch does too. Many times, but I love the fact that for I think mean, 66 chapters, he spoke and he spoke. God gave him a vision. He spoke. And you know what's neat? During that process, some people responded. And that's the beauty of the whole process. But what he does, he pulls back the curtains of what's going on in the hearts of his people and helps them see you got a problem. And here's the problem. And by the way, here's how you deal with it. Now, before we get into the text, I got a couple of other things, sort of background material. There's a significant word for God. In this chapter, by the way, if you've never made it a habit or a passion, study the words the Bible gives us about the nature and character of God. You know, when Jesus was praying for his disciples, he said, Father, now this is eternal life that they know you. God wants us to know him. And I honestly say for 50 years, I don't think I've scratched scratched the surface of the glory and the majesty and the wonder of who he is. I want to know him more every day. And I think that's part of the problem we see in our country, in our nation, in our own personal life. We really don't know God. There's a picture I saw once. It was called about the name El Elyon. It's one of the names of God. It's the most high God, the owner of heaven and earth. It was a picture of a hand holding the world up. Now, that really had an impression on me to remind me this is the God we have. Now, this section we will look at today, we're going to see the word Lord God of hosts. Neil read that. It's Adonai, Jehovah, Sabaoth. It's mentioned in verse 5, verse 12, verse 14, verse 14, again, verse 15, and verse 25. Isaiah uses this word 60 times in his writings. In fact, when the angels were talking about God, he said, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts was talking about this God. He didn't say Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He didn't say Jehovah Rathi, the God who heals. He didn't say Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. He said, the God of angel armies. It's interesting. I use a New American Standard 95 version. And uh, in the 2000 version, it's the God of armies instead of the Lord of hosts. I don't know about you, if when I read the word of hosts, eh. but when I read the word, the the God of angel armies, okay, I better listen. And Isaiah drives that home over and over and over again in these verses. This God of angel armies is a picture of a mighty warrior. A mighty lion to those who refuse to repent and follow. Capable of conquering any and all things. And also, that's the negative part. The positive part, he's able to provide the needs of all who survive. You know, talking about bringing in the National Guard. We see the God of angel armies can deal with rebellion and he can deal with needs. Not only he, but he has the God of unlimited forces to help him. The God of angel armies. Do we realize that? One verse in Isaiah 8, 13 says this. It is the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, who should be regarded as holy. And he shall be feared. And he shall be your dread. There's two illustrations I wanted to mention to you. 2 Kings 6.15. Remember Elisha? Elisha was with his servant, and the army's enemy were surrounding. The scripture says this. Elisha and his servants were surrounded by enemy forces. Now when the attendants of the men of God, of the man of God rose early in the morning. He looked outside and said, behold, the armies, horses and chariots are circling the city. Alas, what are we going to (laughs) do? And Elisha answered, don't fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So Elijah prayed and said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened a servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountains were filled with horses and chariots of fire all around. My friends, those angels are there now, not just then. The God of angel armies is there. That's why we need to have eyes of faith to believe whatever comes into our lives. Now, King David saw that. As a little boy. Remember when he stood against Goliath? I love that story that David said to Goliath, the Philistine. You come to me with your sword and your spear and your javelin. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And the text says, the God of the armies of Israel. That's the God we serve. That's the God that... Judah needed to be reminded of what struck me. You and I have are confronted often with unbelievable forces in our personal lives. We also have giants that we're confronted with, the giants of issues with our family, the giants of financial challenges, the giants of broken relationships. And we can be afraid or we can say, I'm going to go to the Lord. I'm going to trust the God of angel armies to help me. He will. He promises he'll never leave us nor forsake us. Oh, Lord, help us. Lord, give me eyes to see. And a heart to believe. You're always there. You know our many needs. You can provide them. You can deal with whatever the enemy comes. Whatever he throws. Or you can deal with whatever I need to continue on the race that's set before me. But Lord help me to have eyes to see. The God of angel armies. I'm going to try to highlight that phrase through our study as we go through this. Now, there's two other things I wanted to be sure to mention before we get into the text. I'm going to preach a sermon before we get to the text. (laughs) Forgive me. I'm bad about that. It's a good thing I don't get many opportunities. to. (laughs) (laughs) One of them has to do with the word valley of vision. When you read through that, that sort of struck you. What's he talking about, the valley of vision? Well, I I listened on YouTube. There was a, a pastor who preached. A full hour sermon on explaining what the Valley of Vision was. And basically in, in, in Israel, there's three different valleys. The Kidron Valley, where on the east you got the, the Mount of Olives. And the other side of it, you have a wall of Jerusalem. And then in the middle, you have what's called, see if I can remember, Tishporan Valley. And then you have another one called the Hinnah Valley. Very inf- interesting insights. You know, but here we see Isaiah, who's raised primarily in this area, who's given multitude of visions. He calls this the valley of vision, which I believe, and a lot of people I've read, saying he's trying to identify this is the place where God has spoken to me and revealed to me what he wants us to learn, especially in Jerusalem. So the word valley of vision refers to Jerusalem. Makes sense. The other thing I wanted to be sure to mention, prophets like Isaiah are given visions of God's plan. And after they see them, often they see them, and like they look into the future and they'll say, this event, this event, and that event. And they'll, they'll write it, and it's almost like squeezing them all together. There's an interpretive phrase called prophetic for short, for sh, shortens for shortering. thats a hard word to say. One author said this: "Is events are spoken of of future activities, but they also seem like they're taking place now. It's almost like going into a, standing. In, uh, my my son lives, in, one of my sons lives in Colorado, and." We can look at the mountains, and we, it looks like the snow is right on the top of the first uh, mountain, but it's really on the third. So as we look into the scriptures, there's a lot of different prophetic four shortenings. In other words, in, in Isaiah 11:1 through 4, Isaiah is going to speak about the first coming. And then immediately he'll go into the second coming like it's already happening. So it's helpful, and we'll get a little more detail to this when we get to the last few verses, because I think it really applies when we start seeing the many times the scripture speaks about the Messiah, about Jesus, and that's important. Now, if you're ready to get into the text, if you got your notes there, the God of angel armies brings judgment To the valley of vision because they abandoned the Lord. I remember listening to a message of the pastor or the president of the college I went to in Columbia. It was a message that really struck me. It said, Let me get home before dark. That's what he said. Realizing that I can be a believer. And I can be in the word and I can continue. But there is a reality that I need to persevere. God's going to be there. But do I continue to seek him? Do I continue to serve him? Do I continue to stay connected to the vine? No, you know, there's a lot of people more and more in our culture today that are abandoning the Lord. I don't know about you, but I want to pray, Lord, keep me in your name. Jesus prayed that he can't buy, find a better prayer. Keep me in your name. So as, as we read, oh, a couple of other things. Remember Demas? Demas was part of the, the team of, I think it's Paul's team. Yeah, it was. He left the Lord because of his cares for the world. He abandoned the Lord. And as we look at the scriptures and we look at some of the cross references, this is emphasized over and over and over again, how they abandoned the Lord. So follow along with me as we read the text. And then I want to make three comments. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the hilltop? (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'm not sure what he means by that. Could be, I want to see what's happening out there. Could be, I want to go to have a party up on the mountaintop. Not sure why. But it was definitely an affront to Isaiah. And I wonder who he was talking to. This is something that came to my mind. Was he in a business meeting talking to the people? Or was he just sitting down with the elders at the gate? Don't know for sure. But he really does say, you need to know. You need to be aware. This is something I want you to be aware of. Verse 2. You who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exalted city, you're slain, were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. Perhaps famine, perhaps pestilence, perhaps COVID. All your rulers have fled together And they've been captured without the bow. And you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled away. So the word fled is mentioned two or three times. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me, let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of my daughter, the daughters of my people. For the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, has a day of panic, a day of subjugation, a day of confusion in the valley of vision. A breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountains and Elam takes up a quiver with the Chariots and infantry and horsemen occur and covers the shield. Then your choicest valleys were full of chariots. And the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. And he, the God of angel armies, removed the defense of Israel. Three things let me touch on. The God of angel armies has a day of trouble for those who abandon him. There was a pastor down in the south called R.G. Lee, 1957. He preached a sermon, and some says he preached it 1,500 times. It's called payday someday. You see... What we reap, we sow. God makes it very clear. By no means will he clear the guilty. You can't continue to resist him and ignore him and not follow him and expect him to just sort of blink an eye. Now, Israel has been taught this, but for some reason, I don't think it's really going to happen. A day of panic, disturbances, fright, and terror. A day of subjugation, conquering, suppression. A day of confusion, perplexity, lack of certainty, disorientation. I don't know about you, but we went through that when COVID came. Man, what a mess. What a confusion that was taking place. What a panic people have. That's just a blink in the eye of what God can do. If he so chooses. Can you imagine being in Ukraine when Russia attacked? Or in Israel when Hamas attacked? I can't. Frightening. But you know, from God's perspective, let me share with you what's happening. See, God is grieved in his heart that his people are refusing to follow him. Listen as I read Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2. My people have revolted against me. They don't understand me. They act corruptly and abandoned the Lord. There's where the word comes from. They abandoned him. Isn't that the dumbest thing in the world? The most glorious, powerful, loving, compassionate God of the universe. They abandoned him. What about us? Wow. God, they were busy going to church. They were busy offering sacrifices. They were praying their prayers. The scripture says, your prayers are abhorrent to me. I hate your sacrifices. The reason why is because it was just an external ceremonial, empty ritual. Remember, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. That's what wasn't being addressed. When Jesus addressed the Pharisees, he said, you say this with your lips, but your heart is far from me. The real problem, they were religious, but no relationship. Stubbornly resisting God's call to return. They refused to seek him, to draw near to him. I believe the Bible calls that unbelief. You know, that's the only sin in the Bible that's unforgivable. The unpardonable sin is unbelief. Wow. Question for you When the Lord looks at your heart, are you just going through the motions? Or do you have a humble spirit and a contrite heart, trusting in the Lord? You know what the Lord is saying basically to Israel? He said, I've had enough. Isaiah one eleven said, the Lord said, I've had enough. A day of reckoning has come. What I love about the prophet's chart, we see a lot of caving in. The northern kingdom had already been captured by Assyria. And we see a lot of oppression coming in on Judah. But because of the intervention of God in the lives of Hezekiah and Eliakim, Eliakim, there's a revival that takes place and God basically, okay, I'll hold off. I'll hold off. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. But there is a time of reckoning. There's a couple of verses I want to ask you to think about. The first one is Isaiah 2.6. Now here's Isaiah. In, in, Isaiah two, or, yeah, in Isaiah chapter 2, there's three or four different phrases where Isaiah identifies what gives us indication of their abandonment. Listen to this first one. They are full with the influences from the east. And they are soothsayers like the Philistines. And strike a bargain with the children of foreigners. Wow. Paul warned the church in Colossae. Listen to this, it's Colossians 2 See to it that no one take you captive through philosophies, through empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. You see what's happening to this country here, to Israel? They've basically been filled with the influences of their culture. This idea, you know the real problem? God established realities, but our schools and our culture is saying, well, all that's relative. Relativism never overrides the reality of God. Here's another one. In Isaiah two eight. Their land has been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands. Wow. What are the works of our hands? iPads, computers, cars. Making more money. Having more. Things to buy. They, when You know what? They abandoned the Lord because they were more focused on their idols. And you say, well, I don't have an idol. You know what? You want to check it out? Check yourself out. How much time do you spend in the work of your hands compared to your relationship with God? I tell you, I bring you to your knees. Lord, I'm a mess. Mm-hmm. I really am. Here's a third one. In Isaiah 2.22, stop regarding men or man whose breath in life is in his nostrils. <laughs> what should he, why should he be esteemed? Why should we esteem, well, Trump or Biden? Isn't it interesting? Often we'll abandon our relationship with God because our focus is more on earthly things. It says, Behold, the, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, is going to remove them. They come and go. But one thing for sure, the God of angel armies is always there. I'm going to skip one because of time. But there is one more I want to mention. Isaiah 5, 24 and 25. Why did they abandon him? They rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. On account of this, the anger of the Lord was burned against Israel, his people. Notice the next thing in those verses. So God is going to send a day of trouble. We see it. And he also says, I'm going to remove the defenses there. Isn't it is interesting? God has got angels. Did you know you have an angel watching after you? Isn't that amazing? Remember the shield that Job had in the book of Job? God removed the shield so that Satan could have an interaction with him. In this scriptures here, the God of angel armies is going to remove their defenses. He is going to... they have no shepherds, they're exposed to the wolves, all the demonic forces are left free, their allies are falling by the wayside. Man, I don't know about you, but that's frightening. If I abandon the Lord, he will send to me trouble, and he will also remove my defenses. Lord, help me to never abandon you. Forgive me when I think there's a better place to be. Help me with all my heart to love you, to serve you, to seek you, to follow you. In the last thing in this section, Isaiah was deeply grieved over their sin. Verse 4, therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Don't try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughters of my people. I was struck and I was convicted. I don't have this level of grief over the sins of our country, over my own. God is working on me and it's definitely better. When was the last time I wept because of my own sin? And how I abandoned what I knew was the Lord's plan. Jeremiah, I love Jeremiah. By the way, Isaiah spoke to Judah in a certain time. About 53 years later, Jeremiah comes on the scene addressing a lot of the same issues. Jeremiah was one. He he wept, he sobbed, and he was grieved. Jesus did the same thing when he saw my people would come to me. And he was deeply grieved over it. When we look across our country and see the number of people who think it's okay to take the life of a baby, does that grieve you? Breaks my heart. Not as much as it should. Now think about the orphans and the poor. Do I have a grieving heart? Isaiah saw what was coming the size of the enemy and the recognition of the heart of his people and he wept. Oh, Lord, give me a heart like that. Next section, 8 through 14. This is a section where it says the... The God of angel armies judges those who trust themselves instead of him. Now, there is a verse in Jeremiah that is absolutely spot on to this concept. If you have your Bibles, you can look at Jeremiah 2.13. In fact, I encourage you to memorize this verse because it really identifies what Isaiah was addressing with the nation of Israel what God's basic concern is for us as His people, and it really nails the issue of what's happening. Jeremiah 2:13, "My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Isn't that something? the source of all that satisfies my soul. They abandoned God. But the next thing is, they hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. Wow. So basically, what are you saying? My people have rejected the gracious, amazing amount of resources and love and kindness of God in order to get themselves in a sandbox and think they're happy. Piper really develops that in a very powerful way. Remember the woman at the well? When Jesus was talking to her? He said, if if you knew what I had, you would ask me of water. I've got a living water. She said, well, give me that water. I wanted to come back this well. She didn't get it. And the Lord said, yeah, I know you don't really understand. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with is not your husband. You haven't come to the source of true life. You've been trying by building your own cisterns that can't hold water. But come to me. And my friends, that is what we do in our country and in our lives today. We look at the realities of what scripture says. We see the blessings of who God is. And we basically said, well, I'm going to forsake that because I really want to do my own thing. I promise you, it will never satisfy. You ever heard of Larry Crabb? He's not with us anymore. He's in glory. but he's, This was his theme verse. He built his whole ministry around these verses. He was a professor I had in Bible college for one summer. He had a book called Inside Out and Shattered Dreams. And as he counseled people, he helped them see you're busy trying to do what you want to do for your identity, for your grace, for your peace, for your security, but you're building cisterns. It won't work. But let me tell you what will. The fountain of living water. So listen now as we read these verses 8 through 14. In that day, you depend on the weapons of the house of the forest. House of the forest is military stockpile, basically, the way of saying And you saw the breaches in the wall of the city of David, there were many. And you selected waters for the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem. You tore down houses to fortify the walls. And you made the reservoir between one wall, two walls, for water for an old, of an old pool. And basically they, they built a conduit or a cistern from a spring outside of Jerusalem and brought it in under the wall and to the pool of Salaam so that the, when the enemy came, they couldn't have the fresh water they were keeping. A smart thing to do. But the next thing is where well, they fell off the deep end. But you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration what him who planned it long ago. Therefore, in that day, the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, caused you to weeping and wailing and shaving of your head and wearing sackcloth. Instead, there is gaiety and gladness, killing of the uh, cattle and slaughtering the sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Here's another transition. But the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, revealed to me Revealed himself to me and said, surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. Go ahead and build your kingdoms on earth. Go ahead and build your stockpiles. Go ahead and make sure your 401k is is packed. But if you do all those things which aren't bad... And you don't consider and depend on me, you're in big trouble. Three things I wanted to touch on. First, when they disregarded the Lord, it's called the sin of reliance or independence, or arrogant self sufficiency, and the Bible calls it pride. That is the characteristic of Satan. In Isaiah 14, we won't look there, but God has already told him, I got a plan. I'm working out my plan. I'm going to bring Assyria in. You're going to be in captivity, and I'm going to bring you to a place where you finally come to your senses. And they ignored his plan. I like verse 27. The Lord of hosts has planned, and he... He who, and who can frustrate it and as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? We can't. We need to know God's plan and cooperate with his plan. Yet, yeah, go ahead and live life. Go ahead and take care of your family. Be faithful in serving your home. Go ahead and build up, you know, the walls of protection. Don't be stupid and foolish. But also, don't abandon the Lord. Don't think you can do it on your own. One pastor that I was reading, he titled this section, God is Absent, which basically demonstrates an unbelieving spirit. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, wrote, We must realize that God wants us to learn that we are desperately dependent upon him for life itself, for our daily bread. What's part of the Lord's prayer? Lord, give us this day my daily bread for protection from the enemy, for future plans. John Murray in that book said this. The fear of God means that God is constantly in the center of our thoughts and apprehension. And life is characterized by an all-pervasive consciousness of dependence upon him and our responsibility to him. This attitude of absolute dependence on God is not one to be temporarily assumed, like in a crisis, but is to be sustained through all of the routine activities of life, both spiritual and temporal. We need to cultivate a spirit of dependence on God just as much as going to church or teaching a Sunday school class every day. That's one of the things the Lord's working on me. I shared with some of you guys. I want to learn how to practice the presence of God 24-7. I want to recognize that the Bible says he is the potter and I am the clay. What good does the clay do if you're not on the wheel? I need to keep myself on the potter's wheel instead of resisting him. We recognize also the scripture says that he is a good shepherd and the the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. If I want him to be my good shepherd, I need to listen to what he has to say and do what he tells me to do. Other scripture says that he's the chief cornerstone. I love that analogy. He's a, you know, a cornerstone is, is given to set for direction and stability. If I build my life on the chief cornerstone, The Lord said, okay, I'm going to give you direction and stability. We wonder while lives are falling apart, what stone are you building on? The other one said, Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Are you abiding in me? That's where source comes. And I love the last one. Scripture said, Jesus said, I'm a bridegroom. You and I are going to be wed someday. Am I preparing myself for my union with my bridegroom? Wow. The bottom line is they disregarded God selfishly instead of recognizing how desperately they need him. Every day when I get in the car, you know the first thing I do is, Lord, protect me from these idiots out here. (laughs) And also, this idiot. Uh, I'm getting to the place where I recognize anything could happen at any time. I need you, Lord. I need your protection. I need your provision. You know how often we hear that somebody gets cancer or some disease. Lord, keep that thing away from me. I don't want that. But not my will, but thine be done. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross either. But he said, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Dependence upon the Lord. Their problem, like ours often, we abandon the Lord. We disregard his word and think we can do it on our own. But notice the next thing in your outline: they did not humble themselves and seek the Lord. Verse 12 says, Therefore, in the day, that day the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, calls you calls you to weeping and wailing and shaving of the head and wearing sackcloth, crying out to mercy. Really, now this is where our hope is. Appreciate Mitch's message last week in Daniel chapter 5. The history teaches us that God rules the universe. Another point he said, God is the ultimate judge and gives whomever he wills. And here we see Jeremiah or Isaiah communicating to the nation of Israel. You need to stop trying to do it on your own. Stop regarding God. You need to realize He is your only hope. You need to repent of yourself. Turn to Him and seek Him. And in fact, in Isaiah 1.16, it says pretty much the same thing. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease from doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Remove the, rust, the, rust, the ruthless Defend the orphans. Plead for the widows. In other words, change paths. Repent. Isn't it something? When Jesus began his ministry, remember the first thing he preached? Repent, because the kingdom of heaven is home. Remember when Peter preached in Acts? What must we do? Repent and be Baptized. Stop disregarding God. Stop refusing him. Third point, forgive me for going so long. I'm doing pretty good, if you ask me. I thought it was going to take longer than this. Number three, they lived for the joys of pleasures of this world, partying, celebrating, eating, and drinking with no thought Of eternity. Disregarded the Lord, refused to repent, and now they disregarded him. Chapter 5 gives us some indications again of Isaiah. He said, Woe to you, add houses to houses and join fields to fields until there's no more room. Another one says, You drag iniquity with the rods of falsehood, you're deceptive and full of lies. Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, substitute darkness, for light. Wow. And this is, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own insight. Oh, Lord, help me. Help us. Forgive us for going through life with no thought eternity. Help us to seek you first and your kingdom. Help us to always draw near to you. You say you will draw near to us. Help us, Lord, to learn from your word, listen to your spirit, and be quick to repent when we get off track. As John said, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. How often do we sin? (laughs) Constantly our words, and our thoughts, and our attitudes, and our motives. or help us to stay humble before you, realizing how desperately we need you. And then the last point we want to look at, number four in your outline. The God of angel armies puts down pride and raises up his servant. What Isaiah is doing is moving from a general principle to a specific principle. He puts down Shedna and raises up Eliakim. Here we see a picture of the wheat and the tares or the sheep and the goats. Someone who abandons the Lord and tries to build his own kingdom. See, God is a God of mercy, but he works based upon our humble attitude toward him. 15 through 19 shows us a picture of how God is fed up with this guy who was in charge of the royal household. Let me read it to you. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, come go to this steward. He's talking to Isaiah. Go talk to the steward, to Shibna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here? And whom do you have here? That you have hewn a tomb for yourself here. And you who, you in a tomb on the height, you who crave the resting place for yourself in the rocks. What a picture of self-centered arrogance. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, old man. I could just see Isaiah talk top. And he, the God of angel armies, is about to... Grasp you firmly, roll you tightly like a ball, cast you into a vast city, and there you will die. And there your splendid chariots will be. You shame of your master's house. And I will depose dis- you from your office, and I will pull you down from your station. Wow. You abandon the Lord. Disregarded his word, refused to repent, and judgment came. But then I love the next part. Get excited. I love this guy. Then it will come about in that day, saith the Lord, the God of angel armies. I'll summon my servant, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I, the God of angel armies will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder that he has opened when he opens When he opens, no one will shut, and when he shuts, no one will open. And I will drive him with a solid peg in a firm place, and he will become the glory of the house of his father's house. Then they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, offspring and issue the rest of the vessels from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies, The peg driven in a firm place will give way and even break off and fall. The load hanging out would be cut off. The Lord has spoken. Wow. I love this guy. Here's good news. There's two things I want to just touch on. Good news. In the midst of the stir of the angel of God's army, he has a remnant people. Isn't that good news? When we live in America and we see what's happening, the walls are caving in. There seems to be no nothing reasonable or rational taking place. God still has a remnant people. You go back and look at the scripture, you see Joseph who went into Pharaoh's house and went into prison and he went into working with Pharaoh. God had a remnant person there on purpose. We look through the scripture and we see Caleb and Joshua. I love these two guys. Scripture says they... Followed the Lord fully. Caleb and Joshua. God has a remnant people. But see what he was asking us for. Just trust me. Follow me. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, is a good guy. Eliakim, a good guy. A remnant person. Out of Jerusalem, this is in Isaiah 37 32. Out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant. Are you a remnant person? Has God reached in the darkness and called you out of his, into his family? If you listened, recognized your own dependence and surrendered yourself to him and given your life to him, he's given you new life, put the spirit of God in you, You're a remnant person. Not done by you, it's done by him. It's the work of God. That leads us to the last point. We see God's providential unfolding of his redemptive plan. All through the book of Isaiah, there are many references to the Messiah. I read something yesterday and I hadn't had to check it out. But it says that there's over 330 prophecies about Jesus in Isaiah 110 of them refer to the first coming 220 refer to the second coming. I wonder what was on Isaiah's mind. Jesus is coming man a lot of I'm excited. see God has a plan and it's unfolding. I look back and see my mom and dad mom's still around the dad's in the glory and recognized God had a plan to place me in their home where they started working on me, God had a plan, a providential plan of redemption. When he brought me to a place where I recognized, man, I'm a sinner in a mess. And I cried out, Lord, help me. God had a redemptive plan. And you know, it's all centered around one person. When Isaiah wrote in, in Isaiah seven fourteen, Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. It's called a virgin birth. His name is Emmanuel. Pointing to Jesus. Again in Isaiah 9, 6. A child will be born. The government will rest upon his shoulders. Pointing to Jesus. And then our verse in chapter 11, 1. A branch of the root of Jesse will bear fruit. Pointing to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I looked at these last few verses, the first thing that popped out, well, has talked about the keys of the kingdom. But I started looking at this and said, man, almost every characteristic points to Jesus. My servant, he, uh, he's going to have authority. He'll have the keys to uh, the house of David, become the throne of the glory of his father's house. He's going to be stable and Rock solid. See, Isaiah's point, let me tell you about Jesus. The one thing that's different between Jesus and Eliakim, he died. Jesus didn't. He was born, lived, crucified, buried, three days, rose again, ever to live. And you know one of the profound things that's grabbed my heart? He ever lives to make intercession for me. Man, I'm so glad. Not only is the Spirit of God praying for me. I had two two of our guys text me this morning and say, Ron, I want you to know we're praying for you. And I want you guys to know, many of you, I'm praying for you. We need it. God has reached down and done a marvelous thing. See, for Eliakim... My servant entrusted with authority, the father, an inhabitants of Jerusalem, keys to the kingdom. Let me ask you something. You may think I'm crazy, but this happens to me sometimes. What is the keys to the kingdom? Is it possible it's talking about the cross? Hmm. Can anybody get into the kingdom without going through the cross? No. Now, I I told this to my sister and she sort of panicked. She said, no, don't say that. They're going to hang something around their neck and say, look, I'm I'm not talking about the object of the cross. I'm talking about our identity with him on the cross. Paul brings that out in Romans 6. We're buried with him. We died with him. We're raised with him to newness of life. The keys, call me crazy, that's okay. When you get old like me, it doesn't really matter (laughs) anymore. But you know, the last thing of the prophecy moves on into the future Isaiah 53, where it talks about he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, we've abandoned the Lord. We've done it our own thing. The Lord has, and we've turned our own way. But you know, here's the most powerful, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Philip was running across in the road of going from Jerusalem to Gaza, I believe it is. And there was a guy from Ethiopia in a chariot reading the book of Isaiah. And he was reading these verses. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and a lamb before his shears is silent. So he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate to this generation? For his life is removed from this earth. And the Ethiopian union said, who is he talking about? And you know what the Ethiopian beginning at Isaiah 53, he started to explain to him about Jesus. Isn't that glorious? So when you and I start looking at the book of Isaiah, yes, we want to look at him dealing with individual and nation issues at that time, but he's always pointing this way, always pointing to Jesus, always pointing to Jesus. There's no better place for us to point to and no better person for us to give our lives to. Let me summarize quickly. Thus saith the Lord God of angel armies, the commander in chief, A warning, don't abandon the Lord. If you do, you're in deep, deep trouble. The second thing, he says, the God of angel armies, your self-centered self-sufficiency will bring judgment. You need to depend on me. Now, not only do we see a valley of vision, but as far as I can see, this is a valley of decision for each of us. Every day when we wake up, Lord, am I depending on you? How about you today? If you really get honest with your heart, not your behavior, not because you're here, but in your heart of hearts, what's going on? Does your life demonstrate you abandoned the Lord, more focused on this world, building up treasures on earth? Or you say, Lord, no, no, I've got to live and take care. But my heart is yours. That's what I want. What about living in your own dependent world? Are you depending on the Bible? Are you depending on the Spirit of God? Are you depending on the body to be an encouragement? Is, are you depending on the Lord? The point of decision is there for every one of us. And the answer is, Have I repented? Repentance and faith is a transfer of trust from myself to Christ. If you've done that, here's what it looks like. You've plugged yourself into the fountain of living water. You're staying on the potter's wheel so that he can do what he wants to do with you. You're listening to the voice of the shepherd because he wants to guide you and protect you. You're building your life upon the firm foundation of the cornerstone for direction and stability. You're abiding in the vine. His word is a priority to you. You're preparing yourself in purity and holiness for your union with the great bridegroom someday. Can you say without a doubt, Lord, I love you? You're the priority of my life. Lord, I'm a flawed man. I know that, but I desperately need you. And you are the source of life. Help me to continue to come to you. Before we sing our last song and before I pray, there's a couple of questions you have on your notes. I want you to ponder. Are you going through the motions or do you have a humble and contrite heart that trusts the Lord? Do you hate sin? Are you grieved over it in yourself and in your nation, our nation? Do you faithfully seek the Lord, the God of angel armies, to protect you, give you wisdom and direction? Is the Lord prompting you to know him, love him, seek him in a deeper way? Lastly, are you trusting the Lord to do what is good and right in the circumstances that you seem that seem to be unsurmountable. As I pray, ponder those. Think about it for a moment. Lord, thank you for giving us this time together. Thank you for helping me not to cough. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Thank you for giving us examples like Elijah who sees you there always. Thank you for King David who stood before Goliath and said, the God of hosts, the God of angel armies is behind me. Lord, help us, help me to think of that, to be aware of that, be convicted of that every moment of the day. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here today that has not come to a place of recognizing that they've been trying to live their life on their own without you. Lord, bring them to an awareness of their sin. And even more than that, bring them to the awareness of the great blessing from a loving, merciful God that's available if they'll humbly repent and transfer their trust to you. That's up to you, Lord. You're the one who does it. So we just cry out to you to pull down any resistance or rejections, pull down any ideas or concepts that are there. And Lord, if there's anything I've said that's not from you, wipe it from our mind. But the things that are from you, Lord, build them into our hearts so we will live for your glory and gain the joy and the peace